Welcome to Passing Judgment, a podcast about politics and the law and a lot of things in between. I'm your host, Loyola Law School Professor Jessica Levinson, and today I am joined by Professor Abdul Qadir Sino. He is a professor of political science at Indiana University, where he focuses on Middle Eastern studies. He's the author of books and articles on Afghanistan's conflicts, Muslim minorities in Western liberal democracy, public attitudes towards Muslim immigration, conflict processes, and Islamic parties' participation in elections. We're extremely lucky to have him with us to talk through what is currently happening in Afghanistan. Professor, welcome and thank you for passing judgment with us. Happy to be here. Thank you. So I'd like to begin at the beginning because some of my students who might be listening or your students who might be listening really don't remember a time when there were not American troops in Afghanistan. And to start at the most basic level, can you remind us when and why did American troops first go to Afghanistan? Absolutely. As simplest, it was in retaliation to the Al-Qaeda attack on the United States on 9-11-2001. Al-Qaeda is a terrorist organization that had its leaders based in Afghanistan hosted by another organization called the Taliban, which was ruling about 95% of Afghanistan at the time and was poised to take the rest, the remaining 5%. And so the Bush administration, it was early in the Bush administration, George W. Bush's administration, and he gave the Taliban an ultimatum. Give up the Al-Qaeda, just give them to to us, to the United States, uh, or we will devastate Afghanistan. That was basically the ultimatum. The Taliban said, well, give us evidence that Al-Qaeda is behind those attacks, and President Bush and his administration uh, had no patience for it, uh, back and forth. And so they started uh, invading Afghanistan in November 2001. Uh, now, the way they did it was not a straight-out military invasion. They they uh, allied themselves with local foes, local enemies of the Taliban, some of whom were already on the CIA payroll, like Hamid Karzai, who became president of Afghanistan. And U.S. special forces embedded were embedded with the militias of those uh, leaders, and uh, they would direct air force strikes on Taliban uh, uh, defensive uh, locations, and the militias would actually occupy uh, those uh, positions. And uh, uh, the Taliban uh, realized after two months that it was not possible to maintain their positions under American attacks, the Air Force attacks, because, you know, the B-52s and the B-1s and other Air Force assets were formidable assets and they were very destructive, especially that the United States used some very large bombs like the Daisy Cutter and other uh, uh, others with immense Destruction, destructive power, and they folded. They uh, and the, the regime collapsed, and for a few years, the Taliban uh, uh, actually wanted to have peace. They, they want to surrender if they would get an amnesty, but the United States did not accept that. Uh, and in around 2005, uh, three four years later, late 2004, early 2005, the Taliban reorganized as a an insurgent organization to fight the U.S., what they consider to be a U.S. and Western occupation of the land. Now, one thing that is very important to keep in mind is that Al-Qaeda and the Taliban are two different organizations. And as far as we know, 
the Taliban were not even aware, they were not appraised by Osama bin Laden and the Al-Qaeda organization that they were going to attack the United States. But they were hosts to Al-Qaeda. They gave them a refuge. And this is the basis that was used by the Bush administration to attack Afghanistan. So that's incredibly helpful background. And it's clear that you're an expert in this field. And it was helpful to hear about the difference between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda and the original purpose behind the mission. Do you feel that from the Bush administration that the original purpose was the true stated purpose or was there something else going on behind the scenes? What was the Bush administration's true goal here, you think? Well, part of it is domestic. I mean, when the United States was attacked on 9-11, this was very destructive and the American public was in fear. They never witnessed such an attack on American soil before. And so any president, and especially the Bush administration, would not want to appear weak. So they needed to show that they're taking action, regardless of whether this was the best policy or not. And uh, so they needed to do something. And so that was part of the reasoning, domestic factors, really. And they spoke about Afghan women and uh, women and the rights of women in Afghanistan, which were truly suppressed by the Taliban. That is beyond, uh, th- th- I mean, that's a fact. But that was really marketing. They said they want to bring democracy to Afghanistan and bring rights to Afghan women. Uh, this was certainly not their concern. Their concern was to show that they can take action, that the United States has the power to destroy any opponent anywhere. Uh, and cannot tolerate to be attacked. And, you know, in, in large sense, that's understandable. But the bigger question here is that the Bush administration's hawks, they had the neocons, if you recall, who were uh, in charge of U.S. foreign policy with Dick Cheney, Paul Wolfowitz, uh, Rumsfeld, and others in the administration. They really didn't care for Afghanistan. They wanted to attack Iraq. And for them, Afghanistan was a distraction, something they just had to do. And that's why they never invested enough troops in Afghanistan and enough resources in Afghanistan. And they let it fester. Uh, and uh, the, they had a window for a few years between 2001 and 2005 where they could have really stabilized Afghanistan at very low cost if they invested just enough resources to do so. Instead, they decided to only invest, send their 10,000 American troops, uh, limited resources, uh, and uh, uh, the state was not being built. Uh, uh, warlords emerged everywhere and started uh, preying on the population uh, and uh, uh, drug barons emerged everywhere. Um, and uh, that provided an opening for the Taliban to reorganize, re-emerge and market to the Afghans an alternative vision uh, of stable rule where they can re-establish a law and order agenda for which they were famous for the 1990s. Because one thing about the Taliban is that they may be very medieval in the way they look and behave. They made a lot of mistakes. They certainly clamp on women's rights and girls' rights and education. All that was true as far as their rule was concerned in the 1990s. But one thing that they did really, really well was to clamp on crime, criminal activity in Afghanistan to the point where Afghans felt safe in their person and property. And in, uh, the situation was so bad again by 2005 under American occupation because the U.S. did not invest enough resources to stabilize the country that the Taliban had an opening to market their vision and recruit people for a different Afghanistan. So it sounds like there was a turning point during the Bush administration where you feel like they took a road that was not as effective as they could have. And I know there's so much to talk about in terms of what's happening right now, but it just made me curious because of your expertise in this area, what advice would you have given the Bush administration after American troops 
entered Afghanistan is their moment where you just wish you could have said, do this, don't do this? Or is that not a fair question because it just oversimplifies an incredibly complicated situation? This is a very fair question. And the answer is deeply ironic. I would have told them to do all the things that the Taliban are doing right now as they themselves occupy the country. And uh, the Taliban are doing a textbook job in doing it. First of all, they are giving amnesty to all previous combatants. And that's a huge step because by doing so, they preempt the motivation for those who don't approve of the rule to mobilize and start their own insurgency against the Taliban. The Bush administration should have done the same thing. They should have given an amnesty to all Taliban that were not involved with Al-Qaeda. And because the the target was Al-Qaeda, it was not the Taliban. The Taliban, you know, they're actually, in fact, very intertwined with Afghan social structure, especially in the south and the east of the country, uh, where they are among kith and kin. And uh, uh, because the point would have been to stop an insurgency from uh, starting. And if, if we know anything about Afghans, is that once they decide that somebody is their enemy, it's not going to end up well for the enemy. And so uh, another, another thing is that they should, the Bush administration should have sent about 50,000 more troops early on to stabilize the country, to allow the state to be built, invest more in state building initially. See, ultimately, the, the different U.S. administrations invested tens of billions of dollars in building the Afghan state that they wanted to establish, but it was too late in the game already. If they started doing it early, it would have, it would have cost so much less and would have been much more effective. It would have shown that the United States was serious when it comes to Afghanistan. So I just keep thinking about preventative medicine and opportunities that were lost. And I want to bring us then forward to the Obama administration. And it sounds like things had already slipped beyond where they should have been. Did you perceive that there was a consistent policy approach to Afghanistan during the Obama administration? No. In fact, I've been writing about the American failure in Afghanistan for about 15 years. It was clear to me early on that the United States will fail in Afghanistan. And at each stage, there was so much hubris and so many mistakes being done. Just to let you in on a few of them for the sake of time. For example, uh, the use of torture. Thousands of Afghans have been tortured and many were killed. Hundreds have been killed at least by the CIA and U.S. forces in Bagram and elsewhere. Uh, the night killings and the night raids, often targeting wrong people that the United States thought were Taliban because of really bad intelligence. When you kill someone in Afghanistan, you have a whole clan to contend with, and the whole clan becomes your enemy, etc. Uh, there was a lot of hubris. Uh, in a, another example of a hubris is that uh, whenever they would have a discussion uh, in the Obama administration early on when they were deciding what to do in Afghanistan, you would have somebody in the administration go on TV and describe their strategy about how they're going to defeat the Taliban. I kid you not, as if the Taliban don't have access to the internet. And part of that hubris is thinking that we are so technologically advanced and and, uh, our enemies are just at the same level. We can do anything we want in the world. But that's not real. That's not correct. That's hubris. There are individuals whom I respect immensely, like Secretary of State Clinton at the time. She would go on TV and talk about the current strategy to, to defeat the Taliban, how to peel commanders on the edge of the organization like an onion. Uh, well, you know, the first thing the Taliban did when they heard that, of course, is to strengthen their mechanisms of control over their commanders to make sure that no one gets tempted. And in fact, only one commander was tempted and who switched to the U.S. side, and then he switched back to the Taliban. 
So uh, there was no consistent uh, strategy. Uh, generals were being changed in Afghanistan every couple of years. Even General Petraeus, who, I mean, the United States did well militarily in Iraq before 2009, thanks to General Petraeus and few other officers who saw an opportunity, it's a long story, and were able to take advantage of it. But that kind of opportunity in Iraq was not present in Afghanistan. And Petraeus realized that and basically left Afghanistan, his post in Afghanistan, after a year. And then he was followed by McChrystal, who had a completely different approach, and others. Uh, and there was a turnover not only of generals in charge, but also in troops and units in Afghanistan. And uh, another mistake was that there were, it was a coalition of 40 countries. And United was leading a coalition of 40 countries in Afghanistan. And each one of those countries had its own strategy, often conflicting strategies that undermined other countries' strategies. So this isn't fair, but were there any moments in the Obama administration where you thought they're doing a good job, uh, that there are things that they did in Afghanistan where you say, yeah, that would have been my advice to them. Or does it, it sounds to me like you think there were a whole lot of mistakes. It was a whole lot of mistakes. I'm sorry to say that. I I admire uh, many of the people we're talking about and we're mentioning right now otherwise, but Afghanistan was a huge mess and strategy was a huge mess. And I wrote a piece just about that and some of the many mistakes. And there are many more than the ones I just mentioned to you. And they added up to a disastrous venture. Now, let's fast forward to the next administration only because of time constraints. From your perspective, did the Trump administration continue the mistakes of the Obama administration? Did they make matters worse? Or was it an improvement when it came to policies and perspectives towards Afghanistan? Well, uh, when it comes to Afghanistan, things remained the same under the Trump administration until the Trump administration uh, signed a deal with the Taliban in February of last year, of 2020. And uh, that peace agreement between uh, the United States of America and the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan the Taliban, that's what the Taliban call themselves, it was a capitulation of the United States. And uh, read the text, it's available online, I'd be happy to send anyone, <laughs> to send you a, a link. It's a five-page document. Hmm. In it, the United States uh, commits to leaving Afghanistan, to help rebuild Afghanistan, and help the Taliban free their prisoners that are held by the Afghan government that the United States supports, even though the Afghan government doesn't want that. The United States already had accepted to negotiate with the Taliban directly, even though that really undermined their own allies, the Afghan government. And all the Taliban committed to, only one thing, only, and that is that they would not host Al-Qaeda and similar organizations that want to fight the United States in the future. And that's a commitment that cannot be really enforced. So why did the United States make this agreement? The Trump administration, uh, as also the Biden administration did, realized that there's no way the United States can win this war, that there are only two options. Option one would be to maintain an American military presence of a few thousand soldiers who will keep propping up the Afghan military, a military that's not committed, which soldiers don't believe in their own government, which is highly corrupt and practically useless. forever. It would be an open-ended commitment until something happens. And in that, in that scenario here, there's always a possibility that the Taliban would win a dramatic victory and American soldiers would be there on the ground defending themselves. 
And the other scenario, scenario two, is to simply leave Afghanistan and uh, put the blame on the Afghan government if it falls apart and uh, say, well, we did all we can uh, for the Afghans, even, you know, which is an interesting way to frame things because what they were doing, it was not for the Afghans, for the United States by imposing an Afghan regime that was very unpopular. And so if the Taliban win, at least there would be an agreement uh, that creates some goodwill between the Taliban and the United States. And uh, the part about the United States helping rebuild Afghanistan economically, I think even though this is humiliating for the United States when the Taliban take power, if it has to do that, it also gives them some leverage over the Taliban because then the Taliban have something to hope for. And so basically both administrations, uh, Trump and Biden, decided everything is indeed lost. Scenario two is better than scenario one. Might as well uh, leave with some kind of a fig leaf, a treaty, than to leave when there's no more hope uh, or chance of staying without losing. Was that a correct calculation in your view? Yes. It was a correct calculation. It was a horrible calculation between two horrible choices uh, yeah. that that uh, were the only two options or strategies left uh, because of all the mistakes of the past. But this is where they were. So let's now bring us to present day. Uh, it sounds to me like President Trump really set in motion the particulars of how the troop withdrawal would occur. And President Biden made kind of a similar calculation that all was lost and that troops, in fact, did need to leave. And of course, what's happening right now is happening on President Biden's watch. I always wonder kind of how productive is it to place blame, but I know that that's a lot of what I'm reading lately. Who, you know, who should we blame? It sounds to me like you might say everybody, that this has just been bungled from the beginning. Um, and it seems like you think that President Trump and President Biden were essentially left with no choice. So is the blame really what happened earlier in the Bush administration, in the Obama administration? Correct. Uh, in fact, even I would say the biggest share of the blame goes on the Bush administration. They completely mishandled uh, their occupation, their vision of the occupation of Afghanistan. Uh, you know, they started the sequence of events that led us to where we are today. And the Obama administration, uh, they tried to, uh, to uh, pour everything they had into Afghanistan, like anything that the maximum that Afghanistan could sustain in terms of resources, uh, military and otherwise. I mean, this, this war has cost $2 trillion. Uh, you know, and uh, uh, at the peak, you had 140,000 coalition troops in Afghanistan, you know, 110,000 American troops and 30 or 40,000 other uh, allied troops. And on top of that, you had a similar number of contractors hired by the United States and others supporting them. So basically, you had about close to 300,000 soldiers and contractors working in Afghanistan uh, trying to control the country and defeat the Taliban, and they couldn't. So how much more could they do? They tried, and uh, but at that point, it was a lost cause. And they made mistakes. They made mistakes while doing it, too. There was a lot of hubris and all that. Now, when I said it was the right decision to have that treaty with the Taliban, I'm leaving out a couple of very important considerations. One of them is that uh, the United States reputation in the world has been devastated among its allies. You know, when it leaves commitments like this one, basically having lost the war, that emboldens opponents and also allies in Somalia, in Iraq, in Syria, and elsewhere whose lives depend on 
their alliance with the United States are probably thinking about potential exit strategies right now, you know, because the U.S. can leave them just like it left the government of Afghanistan. So that's a consideration. And the other consideration is that there are many civilians and members of Afghan institutions who worked very closely with the United States. Now, hopefully they get amnesty from the Taliban, but many are fearing for their lives anyway and are trying to leave the country. So we are going to have a huge wave of migration from Afghanistan in the coming month. And uh, already Afghans are the largest national group trying to apply for asylum in Europe. Uh, so we need, in addition to that treaty and its implementation, I hope uh, the Biden administration, uh, I mean, is willing to put pressure on different countries to accept Afghan refugees who are who are leaving the country, running with their lives. And we've seen some really gutting images of people doing absolutely everything they can to flee the country, and it brings back for some of us uh, Vietnam images from World War II. Um, it sounds to me like the term humanitarian crisis is, in fact, entirely the appropriate one. And while I have you here, I keep thinking about a broader question. I know our topic today is Afghanistan, but I'm wondering if you think that the approach that American presidents have had to Afghanistan, um, and maybe focusing on the Obama administration for a minute, was it an aberration? Do you feel that otherwise with respect to the Obama administration, let's just use them as an example, otherwise with respect to their approach to the Middle East, do you think that they generally did a good job or was Afghanistan in fact very emblematic of what their general approach was? Well, it's a big question. Uh, yeah. There were quite a few things happening in the Middle East. I mean, for example, uh, uh, I know the Arab Spring happened on President Obama's watch, right? Uh, the Arab Spring. Well, in Egypt, uh, the United States was supporting the dictator Hosni Mubarak, uh, and only withdrew his support. And uh, President Obama basically made a statement that uh, he he cannot back him under the current circumstances. Only when it became almost obvious that he was going to lose power, uh, you know. And why? Because, I mean, he was very useful. He was a useful ally. He was helping the United States with military exercises every year and by providing intelligence and helping uh, in operations against Islam's organizations and all that. I mean, was that smart or not smart? Well, I mean, it betrayed American principles. I mean, I guess Washington always claims, whoever is in charge claims that there are supporters of democracy around the world, right? So why wait until the last moment to support uh, people on the street asking for their freedom against a dictator who is an ally of the United States. Uh, you know, for every country, there's a different equation. And sometimes the Obama administration did well, sometimes it did not. I mean, in Libya, it took a chance uh, by supporting the revolutionaries under pressure by European allies. Uh, it complete, and Libya completely collapsed and went into chaos. In Syria, it, it missed an opportunity early on uh, when it could have supported the revolutionaries when they were highly democratic and we didn't have any militants, uh, and it didn't. And then the country became a haven for militants. But it's, it's hard to speak about counterfactuals, right? I mean, we don't know. Like, uh, we can say, well, this would, could have been better, but it may have been actually worse even. Uh, it's, it's, you know, just, those matters are so complicated. And uh, the dynamics of conflict are so complicated that it's hard to cast a judgment. I mean, I basically, overall, I, I give the Obama administration a B on the Middle East. Uh, I, I give the I give the Bush administration an F, to be honest, uh, and yeah. I I just couldn't resist asking you because it does 
bring us back to our topic, which is, is there something about Afghanistan that is so intractable that it it almost calls out the weaknesses in any administration? And it sounds to me like you think that really the Bush administration is to blame and that there was not one, but a number of forks in the road, and they just kept taking the wrong fork over and over again. And that kind of snowballed to where we are today. Um, and and I think it probably is incumbent upon me to stay with where we are today and ask you, um, did President Biden, even though maybe troop withdrawal in general was the correct approach, did he bungle, in your view, the specifics of it? Was there a different way to accomplish this that would have been better? Or is this really just a story of inevitability? Well, the, the one thing he may, his administration may have done differently was to treat the Afghan government that it supposedly supported with a bit more respect and to show it up in the eyes of its own public, as opposed to keep continuously blaming it for the failings in Afghanistan for domestic reasons. But even that may not have made a difference, you know, to be honest. It's just, uh, listen, uh, everyone in Afghanistan was ready for the end game. It may have taken six months. It may have taken two years. It ended up taking a few weeks. And uh, uh, even state officials were, were already were communicating with the Taliban well before in anticipation of the end game. You know, knowing that U.S. support will end, and when U.S. support will end to the regime, it will fall apart. No one in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan wants to be the last person to leave a failing organization or a failing regime and pay the price. And we heard that when President Biden addressed the nation, and he did take responsibility, and he also placed responsibility elsewhere. And we're now left with the fact that, you know, I've asked you a lot about what could have been done, what should have been done. We are where we are. And I'm wondering if you can walk us through a little bit. You've used the words, I believe, humanitarian crisis. What is it going to look like on the ground in Afghanistan over the next let's say, five years, will it go back to um, looking like before uh, U.S. troops first came 20 years ago? Well, it's hard to predict for a number of reasons, but I'll give you my best shot at it. The Taliban are making very public statements coming from their own leadership that there will be amnesty to all government employees and soldiers and police and all of their previous opponents and other combatants. So they should not fear for their lives. They're making statements that women will have their rights protected, but they qualify that by saying within the borders of Sharia, Islamic law, which they interpret normally in a very restrictive way. And uh, uh, they try to reassure people domestically because they are going through a period of transition. And during transition, you want the transition to be smooth, and so you you want to lessen opposition. So they're trying to assuage, calm people, and uh, try to reassure them. Also, they're trying to reassure international players, other countries, like the United States and others, so they will not go down the road of imposing sanctions on Afghanistan like they did in the 1990s. Uh, And that was, by the way, another mistake by U.S. administration, the Clinton administration. They imposed sanctions on Afghanistan uh, in the 1990s. Uh, Basically, they treated the Taliban as an enemy they could afford to have. So uh, anyway, and so, uh, but imposing sanctions on a country as poor as Afghanistan, where the GDP per capita is $500 a year, you know, would be very harsh. And so they also don't want to avoid that. And they want to have 
access to international funding to help rebuild Afghanistan. And they want to keep at home uh, those who are educated enough to be able to run state institutions and factories and all that. And so they are being very reassuring. And those are strategic decisions. Now, will they keep doing that over time? Well, they could. I mean, if it works for them, they may continue to do it. But they may decide at some point to change tack, to uh, go back to the olden days. They may have some factions within the Taliban, some more conservative than others that may gain the upper hand. Also, another detail is that I often see in the news, for example, someone reporting from some city or town or village saying uh, that the Taliban did this or that, that went against what their leaders are saying, and so they are really lying. Well, that may be the case, but I don't think it is. I think what happens is that you have in every large organization, and the Taliban is one, right? I mean, Afghanistan is the size of California. Uh, you have control issues. The leadership may make strategic decisions, but it doesn't mean that every commander on the ground will do exactly, will follow the line that the leadership has set for any number of reasons. Also, some of those commanders in the field are in, a very, in very conservative areas where the people are so conservative that they would like to have some certain types of restrictions that, are, that, would, that, that would be unacceptable to the people in Kabul, the capital, for example. So I don't think those are necessarily signs that the Taliban are lying uh, uh, or that are being hypocritical, uh, you know, but uh, we don't know what the future will hold. In the shorter run, I think the strategy is to stabilize Afghanistan, keep things working in Afghanistan, to have a peaceful transition and to provide amnesty and not harming anyone. But will that be the case five years down the road? I can't tell you. I think that's so true, which is that it's absolutely hard to predict how this looks in 10, 20 years. And what I keep thinking about and what maybe I live in an echo chamber and a lot of people around me keep asking me or posting about this issue of women's rights and um, girls' access to education. Do you have a sense of what the country looks like in terms of access to education a uh, woman's ability to move freely in the country to be full participants in society. Absolutely. Now, Afghanistan is a complicated social space. In the conservative South and East, the rural areas where the Pashtun, the largest ethnic group in Afghanistan, live, uh, those are very conservative areas. I mean, Afghanistan as a whole is one of the most conservative countries in the world. And uh, for those in those areas, nothing really will change. They always were conservative. They continue to be conservative, um, and opportunities for education and advancement for women will continue to be limited. The people who will be most affected by Taliban rule, if Taliban rule becomes uh, much more restrictive and as possible, are the city dwellers, especially in Kabul, uh, Mazari Sharif, uh, Herat, you know, and to lesser degree Jalalabad and Kandahar, the big cities, and uh, in those cities you've had the class of women who have become educated who took advantage of educational opportunities and work opportunities that emerged in the last 20 years who will feel restricted, uh, who will be restricted uh, because of... Uh, uh, already we see signs, for example, that uh, uh, businesses uh, have replaced their women workers with men workers, like hotels or what have you, in Kabul. And uh, uh, women were protesting in Kabul, apparently, asking for the continuing access to education and jobs. And so it's a real issue. Now, 
having said that, I really have to be clear that it's not a dichotomy between how amazing things were under the U.S. occupation of Afghanistan and how horrible it would be under the Taliban. Because frankly, the US, during the last 20 years when the United States occupied Afghanistan, advancements for Afghan women have been limited. Okay? That may sound surprising to many of your listeners. But if you look at an article by the New York Times from 2018, they found that the United States, uh, the administration at the time, and different agencies uh, during the Obama administration, the Bush administration, as well as the Trump administration, were actually providing false figures, fabricated numbers, to show improvements for women and girls in education and in health. I kid you not. And they found that, in fact, the health of women in Afghanistan has hardly changed under the American occupation and under Taliban rule before that. And when it comes to education, however, there was more access to education for girls, but still one out of 10 Afghan children, boy or girl, graduate from high school. I think that's such important context and information. And unfortunately, I feel like in particular, Americans tend to view foreign policy in black and white terms. It's better. It's worse. Uh, it's, you know, there's very little gray area. It's bad. It's good. And I think you've given us so much important nuance. And I know I need to let you go soon, but I would like to ask another very broad question, which is, is there something that you wish an American audience understood about the current place we are in with respect to what's happening in in Afghanistan? If there's, you know, one paragraph where you say, I'm watching the news and why doesn't anybody mention this? Or why is everybody giving their, you know, quote unquote, hot take, but it misses this or it doesn't include this? It's, it's rare to get somebody with your deep level of expertise. And I'm wondering if there's one or, or two things that you just wish we talked about more, that we understood more deeply. Oh, yes. One big thing I would love my fellow Americans to know about Afghanistan and the rest of the Middle East is that is the reason behind the 9-11 attacks on the United States. If you ask Americans, why did Al-Qaeda attack the United States? Most will probably have no answer. They probably say they're evil or what have you. And may very well be right that they're evil. But that was a strategic attack. The Al-Qaeda attacked the United States to get the United States to retaliate by invading Muslim countries and get bogged down in insurgencies like in Iraq and Afghanistan. Because that's how you defeat a stronger enemy, a superpower, by asymmetric warfare. And the Bush administration played right into the hand of Al-Qaeda. They fell into the trap of Al-Qaeda by invading both Iraq and Afghanistan. And of course, Iraq had nothing to do with 9-11 in spite of claims by the Bush administration at the time, a congressional bipartisan report found that Iraq had nothing to do with the 9-11 attacks. Invading countries, under the, whether, under the pretense, whether uh, sincere or not, that, under the, you know, that we want to bring democracy to those countries or improve the lot of women or what have you, can only lead to foreign policy disasters. In Afghanistan, we lost the war. In Iraq, all we managed to do is to establish a regime that's a closer ally to Iran than it will ever be to the United States. There are better ways to solve international crises. Invasions and occupations is not one of them. I think that brings us to exactly where we are right now. And I promise this is the final, final question. When the history books look back 
on President Biden's decision to withdraw the troops and to withdraw the troops in this way. What's the sentence going to be? President Biden's decision to withdraw the troops was, is it going to be inevitable, an inevitable disaster, brave, courageous, cowardly? Do you have a sense of how we'll look back on this moment? Well, history is written with the sensitivities of the moment. So I don't know where the sensitivities of people will be and of authors or of historians will be in 20 years or 30 years. But if I were a historian 30 years down the road, I would probably write that he faced an unfortunate choice that he had to make. And uh, he did the best he could. Ultimately, it did not work well for Afghans or for Americans. And, uh, you know, this whole war, the way it was conducted, has created so much hatred and ill will towards us, towards the United States and Americans in the Middle East. And the same thing with the wars in Iraq and elsewhere. But that perhaps a clean break, disengagement, and a reset of American foreign policy towards Muslim countries uh, was due to happen. And maybe this was a good step in that direction. Professor Abdul Qadir Sino, I have learned so much during the course of our conversation. I'm extremely grateful for your time. And I want to let listeners know that they can find out more about you by going to, I see you have a website, www.sinno.com. Professor, thank you so much. Thank you, Professor Levinson. It was a pleasure. Thank you to our listeners. This really was one of the more eye-opening conversations that we've had recently. And I just learned an enormous amount. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Levinson Jessica, the podcast on Twitter at Past Judgment Pod. Please let us know what you'd like to hear more about, and we will do our best to do that. And we wish everybody a good day. Mm-hmm.